it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Over 30 years ago in Lagos, Nigeria, my guest today, Manny Ahomi, received his first pair of shoes. The gift had a profound impact on him, propelling Manny to work hard at developing his talents, skills, and confidence, and it inspired him to channel his experiences into making a difference for others. To that end, he founded Samaritan's Feet, a nonprofit organization focused on inspiring hope through the gift of shoes. The organization strives to tackle global poverty, footborne disease, and the domestic need for shoes and socks. Manny, welcome to Brand on Purpose. What a pleasure, man. It's just a pleasure to meet you, and I'm excited to learn and be a part of what you guys got going on. Same here. Same here. I'm sure our listeners are excited to learn about your story, and let's just start there. So... I believe that you named the organization Samaritan's Feet after a good Samaritan whom you met when you were just nine years old in Lagos, and you entered this contest. They were a missionary, I think, from Wisconsin, so it's like middle America, right? (laughs) They're they're a missionary, and they ran a contest, and you can tell us more about the contest, but basically you won, and the prize, the gift was a pair of shoes? Yeah. Well, you know, at the age of nine, my responsibility is actually to help my mom help extend the financial resources are home. So my job is to actually help my mom sell water and soft drinks at parks so we can hydrate the athletes and play sports by my house. So funny, growing up where I grew up in, I was I was so pissing good Aaron and say, God, give me 001. That means, okay, if not breakfast, lunch, but at least give me supper so I can make it to the next day. And if you put it in context, people that live in my neighborhood lived on less than a dollar a day. And and that day, I didn't realize I was about to have a date with destiny. So I showed up at this park to go sell soft drinks and water. And there was this group of people that were there teaching African children how to play sports. And they had these little orange balls. So in my neighborhood, everything that's round and bounce, we kick them. <laughs> but this one, they were dribbling this one, uh, teaching guys how to bab, you know, dribble and pass and shoot the ball. As these kids were having so much fun, I want to join them. But because I was a street merchant, so most of these kids that were there were shooing me away, told me to go do my job. But I just felt like I needed to be a part of what they were doing there that day. So as my basket was down, I was watching what was going on. And one of the balls kind of rolled off the court right around the corner by this tree, by this, at this park. So I quickly ran after it. I brought it and I snuck in and joined those kids that were there. Just like I belong, even though everybody that was playing there realized I wasn't supposed to be part of the kids that was supposed to be playing there that day. So I started dribbling and passing and shooting the ball. And in the middle of all this mayhem, this guy, Dave from Wisconsin, said, we're going to have a shooting competition. And he said, the price for the winner is going to be a new pair of shoes. Now you've got to realize in my neighborhood, a pair of tennis shoes is like a car. You know, so when this guy said, they want someone to enter into this contest. Every person that they wanted to get picked was screaming, pick me, pick me, pick me. I was one of the few that got picked that had never played basketball in my life. But the first shot I took that, they went in. I ended up winning the competition, becoming the first person, not just in my family, but in my community to own a pair of tennis shoes. Just changed my world. All I want to do was just run home. And as I was about to take off, and this guy called me, you know, like to the front to present me this pair of shoes. And he looked at me. And he said, just because all I saw around me was poverty, it doesn't mean the creator that created me doesn't have a plan for me. 
And he told me I should keep dreaming and keep dreaming big. You know, it's crazy the idea that guy could have told me the sky was green. I would have believed him. And after I finished speaking, I took off. I ran so fast, I forgot my basket of water until I showed up at home and my mom looked at me and said, son, where's my water? I said, mama, check out my shoes. And mom was so happy for me. And a few minutes later, mama said, you better go bring back my basket of water or else tonight you're about to meet Jesus. So I ran all the way back to the park and got there. Thank goodness that my product was still there. So I ran back home. I took the stuff back home. And from that day on, basketball became my escape because my home life was a little bit tough because of some of the choices my father made because of drinking alcohol, some of the other things. So every time I find myself just you know, feeling sorry for myself or something crazy going on in my home, I'll find myself in the basketball court. And so I started getting better and, and getting taller. And, and, and one day I still remember going to my mom and asking my mom, why do we have to be so poor? And my mom took me by this little window by my house and, and she said, son, I want you to look outside. He said, son, what do you see? I said, mom, I see trees outside. I said, no, son, you're not looking high enough. Tell me, what do you see? And I tell her, mom, I see birds. And the son, you're not looking high enough. She said, what do you see? I said, mom, I see the clouds. And he said, you ever wonder why God created the sky so high? And I said, I don't know, mama. And she said, so poor boys like you can dream real high. He said, never make excuse for life. He said, just because today may be a crappy day and, and things may seem like your dream may seem so unreachable. But as long as her God was on the throne, she always told me that I can do all things for the one mm-hmm. that created me that gives me strength. So so I started playing basketball. So basketball became my escape. And, and as I got bigger and better one day, as I was now approaching high school, I still remember going to my coach and say, coach, I love to be able to play basketball in America. And I still remember him laughing at me. He says, son, you're not tall enough. You're not quick enough. You're not fast enough. Why do you think anybody in America is going to ever give you a scholarship? He said, you're pretty bold to come to even approach me an opportunity to be connected to a coach in America. I said, coach, I just feel like I'm supposed to one day go to America and go play basketball. And and she says, son, I got to give you kudos for even approaching me for your boldness. But all I'm going to offer you is I'm going to try and give you a name of a number of schools. And if any of them responds to you, I'll promise this because I doubt anybody's going to respond to you. But if they do, I wouldn't mind giving you a recommendation. And his recommendation was very important because he was the well-known coach for one of the most famous Nigerian basketball player, Akim Olajuwon. So fast forward, you know, I wrote letters to a bunch of schools in the United States and I ended up getting scholarship interest. But I didn't know much about this country. I had interest from five different schools. I've heard about New York, I've heard about Los Angeles, and I've heard about Houston, Texas. So at my home that day, I remember still putting these brochures on the table. I said, I'll pick the school with the best looking brochure. (laughs) (laughs) Man, those PR people, man, they knew what in the world they were doing. Guess what school I picked? I picked the University of North Dakota in Lake Region. (laughs) And I didn't have a clue what it was. All I knew was there was this beautiful blonde hair, gorgeous looking girls, amazing, you know, athletes on there. There was this gorgeous Corvette. And I still remember it was blue and white. It was beautiful. And I said, I'm going to that school. <laughs> I didn't realize I was picking North Dakota until I showed up in North Dakota. I said, I've done something wrong to God. This is the coldest place in the entire world. It was unbelievable. But that was probably one of the best decisions I could have made because when I went to that school, I ended up eventually meeting my future bride that I've been married to now for about 28 years, been with her for about 31 years, and eventually transferring from that school, going to another school in Minnesota because honestly, I thought I was going to go learn you know, the intricacies of what it takes to manage international business. And, and I thought I was going to be one day be the, the head of the UN food program because I knew what it was like to be hungry. And I knew one day I want to be able to make sure kids like me never go hungry around anywhere in the world. 
Well, I didn't realize there was a much bigger plan, something much different. So I finished my undergrad with an international business, international relations degree, and, and I went on to get my, my master's at North Dakota State. And, and I applied economics and, and supply chain and transportation and end up actually getting picked as one of the top students in my program to go to this conference in San Diego, California. I still remember lining in San Diego saying, why wasn't this one of my options? <laughs> and <laughs> it was amazing. So I showed up in there and one of these guys, that was a CEO of a technology company approached me. He asked me if I wanted a job. I still remember he said he was going to fly me to this place called Charlotte. So I remember asking him, I said, where's Charlotte? He said, why are you asking me where Charlotte is? I told him the last time I didn't ask that question, I showed up in North Dakota. I didn't want to make the mistake twice in a row. And I remember flying me to Charlotte and offering me a job and became a product manager for a logistics software company. I thought I was going to learn what it takes technologically to be able to improve the supply chain efficiencies of what it takes to move products. I didn't realize there was something much bigger as part of my process. So fast forward, our company got acquired during another company, but through all this process, my father got really sick and I had to go back to Africa. Eventually my father actually ended up dying. So I went back to Nigeria to go bury my dad. And I remember showing up at home and I've been gone now for about 10 years. And, and it was like, I forgot how poor I really was. It was so bad. I couldn't even use the at the bathroom of my house, I had to go across the street to the park where I used to play sports and sell water. And as I came out of that restroom that day and I looked upon the horizon of that park, I saw many of those children just like me. I didn't have shoes. I didn't have hope. And I asked myself, what if I can start coming back to help kids like this? And I, eventually I learned that actually over 300 million kids in Africa wake up every day with no shoes on their feet. That over a billion, 1.5 billion with a B were infected with diseases according to the World Health Organization because many of them didn't have shoes. And I said, somebody ought to do something about this problem. At that time, I didn't know that somebody was going to be me. So fast forward later, we came back five years later. My wife and I decided to step out of the uh, technology rat race and, and her out of the travel business, a strategic organization called Samaritan's Feet, with a vision to go put shoes in the feet of 10 million kids around the world. And, and since that humbling day in, in 2003, since that day, we've now served over 8.3, close to 8.4 million children and people in over 110 countries worldwide. Over 44 now U.S. states and 440 U.S. cities. And for a kid who didn't have shoes, we now manufacture our shoes. We actually one of the first ones to invent the world shoe, the first of its kind that has an active antimicrobial to help repel parasitic and bacteria infection. And also that's very green. It's got an active biodegradable agent in there. So the end of the shelf life of that shoe, we can actually bury it and it'll biodegrade so we don't become environmental news. And so it's amazing what can happen when somebody chooses to be generous. You never know what ripple effect of that choice is going to be. And you're now looking at the, the decision of one man from Wisconsin that came to Africa to give a poor African kid a pair of shoes that has now been multiplied uh, millions of time over. That is just an incredible story and journey. And it's so interesting to me that you first landed in North Dakota. I mean, you basically covered some of the heartland of the United States. <laughs> And then went to Charlotte. Yeah, and San Diego is one of the most beautiful places in the country, for sure. Who and how did you partner to actually manufacture all these shoes? Who did you work with? Who did you partner with? Yeah, so, you know, I remember in 2004, actually, I had a board member that ran a small footwear company that supplied to the likes of Walmart, Kmart, Target, Kohl's, and all this uh, private kind of branded type of shoe. I remember approaching that one of my dreams, even before Tom Shoes actually came on the scene that I want to be able to have some type of shoe that every time we sell one, we'll be able to actually give one away. And I remember uh, this gentleman that ran this company called Renaissance Imports at that time, 
helped me make our first actually active tennis shoes that we started selling around the holidays. And it's amazing. Tom came on the scene that created this amazing social venture that just blew up and they just did some phenomenal things. Uh, through that process, eventually we actually partnered with Skechers that actually made the Bob shoes. Every time you bought one, you give one away. We actually ended up helping them distribute close to a couple million pairs of shoes around the world. Skechers. You know, and then eventually, actually, one of our partners was Walmart. And every year we'll go up there and kind of share with them because part of their supply chain team partner with us. And and across the country, they adopt many of the Title I schools to be able to provide footwear for many of them. Because when we actually do this shoe distribution, it's a very powerful, really intimate and opportunity for us to be able to interact one-on-one with, with our recipients. We get the chance to if they have these ragged shoes, we take them off and wash their feet and clean their feet. This is pre-COVID, and you know now we've actually innovated and done some unique things here. But around the world, we still kind of do what we do while we're exercising some good health protocols so we can prevent people from contracting any type of virus from that stuff. But it's crazy because when we used to do this, that's the way we used to distribute. And I still remember sharing with Walmart that my dream one day is to be able to have some type of shoe will be known as a world shoe that They'll have this active antimicrobial that will be biodegradable. And I remember when the head of their footwear business connected with me, said, man, I think we can connect with you, the guy that actually manufactures our shoes and ended up connecting us to the manufacturer that does all their private EVA type of shoes at all Walmart stores around the world. And which eventually I had a relationship that I connected with that had this antimicrobial and this biodegradable property. And they were the first to help us kind of put this stuff together and made in the United States, yeah, in the great state of Georgia. You know, we started distributing those shoes. And, you know, now that we are at the cusp of uh, getting to close to 10 million, and most of the shoes we distributed, some of them, a lot of those go internationally and during natural disasters. But also we have we've partnered with many other companies like the likes of Nike, Converse, Adidas, you know, Elon Polo, all these companies that donate shoes. And, and many individuals also donate funds that we use to either manufacture or go purchase shoes. A few years ago, we actually had a huge partnership with Sears actually gave us about 1.3 million pairs of shoes through a partnership we had with a couple of the NBA players through this new shoe that we're launching at Kmart around the country called Protege Shoes. And as part of that big give, Sears at that time wanted to be able to kind of do the biggest give and they ended up giving us about 1.3 million shoes. So we've got different ways in which we manufacture shoes and then we also get some people to donate shoes and then we also procure shoes from different types of it's interesting. You mentioned Tom's and a lot of folks think about Tom's when they think about one, the buy one, give one concept around conscious capitalism, which has been incredibly effective. And you see the likes of so many others, Bombas, Warby Parker, others who've been on this podcast. It's interesting that I'd never known the story behind Walmart and Skechers being the early partners and supporters and manufacturers behind this effort. I don't remember hearing or reading about it. And sometimes when you don't hear or read about something, this is going to sound strange coming from a PR guy. It makes it even more authentic in some ways because you know that old kind of cliched expression, it's what you do when others aren't looking. That's true altruism and generosity and give back. And it's kind of feels like that, right? There wasn't a lot of promotion or PR or pomp or circumstance. And I love the idea behind a world shoe and this technology of antimicrobial coatings to help battle footborne diseases, but also then, I mean, it's amazing, and then biodegrade in landfills, right? How did you come up with that concept? I'm assuming you partnered with, you know, scientists and technicians, and obviously you're a very bright, very ambitious individual yourself, but how did you come up with the concept of the world's shoe? 
Well, it's been a dream of mine, actually, for years, Dan. Man, I just remember visiting the country of Ethiopia years ago, and and over five point something million people in Ethiopia has this condition called podoconiosis. It's a non-filarial type of elephantiasis. And I still remember, I mean, Aaron, when, you know, many of these people that live in that kind of agrarian culture, many of them farmers and the farm, the soils, the silica, and because many of them don't have shoes and the the farming in those communities. So, so this, you know, their feet is exposed to this dirt and it attacks the sole of their feet and start eating away at it. And if you don't have any kind of protective covering your feet, all of a sudden it attacks your nerves and your feet and your feet just blows up sometimes about four to five times its original size. And it's, it's gathers this pus, it's, it's, just, it's just gross. I mean, it, you smell, you look like you have leprosy and nobody want to be around you. And the solution for that was shoes. I said, man, one day I hope I can come up with a pair of shoes that can actually help prevent this. And, and then we, we've been serving a lot in, across you know, Uganda and, and Burundi and through the work we have there with some of their governments there and, and, and Zimbabwe and, and just a whole bunch of parts of Africa and even India and Colombia. And then we saw this other condition that was so crazy, Aaron, that it's, it's, like, it's like this parasitic flea that burrows through the soil and the fine openings on your toes and your feet when there's any cut, any kind of opening, and they burrow through that. And then they transport it through your blood system. And if you don't, if you don't have protection and this stuff gets in your body, it's like your skin starts building all this weird rashes. And all of a sudden, it looks like you have leprosy. And the solution for it is, it's this weird parasite. The solution for it is just shoes. So I said, man, my dream, just like my hero was Dr. King. And I, I would say, after, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. As I, I always like to say at the end of the stuff, my dream one day is to be able to have a world with zero shoeless children. And it would be a dream to have a world shoe that can actually cure this problem that we can actually have a solution. So every child in the world will have a pair of shoes and everyone that has that will put on our shoes, if they have any kind of parasite or bacteria that wants to attack their feet, this shoe will be a solution. So one day I was actually traveling, speaking in the Midwest, and this scientist that was in the crowd said, you know, I've never done this in shoes, but I have this technology that I actually use that I've embedded in plastic before in hospitals where they have surgical units that prevent Mercer and different types of things. He said, I'm willing to explore if you're willing to team up with me. I said, you don't realize you're an answer to prayer. So we started talking and eventually that led to our connection with the manufacturer that Walmart introduced us to. And we talked to them and we talked to them. They found the compounder. They came up with a strategy to be able to actually take this particular organic secret sauce and, and kind of compound it so we can actually turn it into a plastic so then we can create this injection molding process we would manufacture the shoes. And then while we're doing it, I remember still talking to the manufacturer. I said, man, it would be so cool that we can actually have one day this shoe that we're going to be making here that will be biodegradable so we don't become an environmental nuisance. And he said, you won't believe this. Actually, we were doing some work with Brooks a few years ago. They actually came up with this. They applied this technology, but didn't put it in shoes, but they put it in the insole, but they never went anywhere with it. So maybe we can try what you use. So all of a sudden, we became the first to kind of put, put the antimicrobial and the biodegradable in the shoe. And it came out. And right after that, it was a major disaster that actually happened, a hurricane that came through Houston. And we came up with a Red Cross and we provided a bunch of those shoes. And we didn't realize there was actually going to be that application right here at home. Now we actually not just use them overseas to provide kids shoes to go to school, but also during natural disasters. And, and that's just, it became just a dream. Sometimes you got to share your dream because you don't know who's listening. And there's a lot of dream makers out there. And maybe people listen to your podcast right now that has dream, but they just kept it to themselves. They've got to share that dream, write them down and find people that are visionaries that are also passionate about helping see dreams come true. You never know who that will be.
I found a dream that helped me make my dream come true. Yeah, that's the whole reason why I, I started the show. It's to inspire others to do more, give more, be better, and give back. And I'm just wondering, in addition to providing children with shoes and people, adults as well, I'm, I'm assuming, it's probably not that hard to give shoes away once you have the infrastructure. Is it hard and do you need to educate people as to why they should be wearing shoes? And I ask because it was striking to me when I had Warby Parker and Vision Spring, their main charity partner on the show. One of the things that came up was when you wear glasses in other countries around the world, developing countries and in areas that are impoverished or there is this division between the haves and the have-nots. And people at first, if you were wearing glasses, you were thought to be you know, greater than, and it actually could work against you. So they needed to educate folks in different communities that you know, wearing glasses is not a stigma. Actually, it's an opportunity to be able to do more with your life and have the confidence and skills, the things like you're talking about. I imagine it's the same thing with shoes, but did you have any hesitancy or issues? And did you have to educate people like, hey, this pair of shoes actually can help you maybe not even just save your life, but give you the life that you're dreaming of, right? And be able to have you achieve things that were previously unimaginable. I mean, people don't realize this. In most places around the world, shoes is actually part of their school uniform. So without a pair of shoes, many of the kids can't go to school. And so that means the academic window, the education window, and, and many of these kids, because their parents cannot afford to provide them shoes, they end up becoming street merchants and selling things on the street, and, and they don't realize their dream. Many kids in the United States, I mean, shoes are one of the top three needs for kids going back to school. So without shoes, kids can't play. You know, you've got dignity issues you got to deal with. Kids, I mean, they're embarrassed because they're wearing shoes sometimes that are too tight or two or three, four, five sizes too small. We've seen boys come to school with girls' shoes because of just choices. That's some family economic situations and circumstances. You know, across the United States, I mean, physical education is a huge part of the things that they do. You'd be shocked to see kids. Some of them are wearing flip-flops because their parents can't afford shoes. they got to decide, do I buy food or do I, do I pay my light bill or do I use it for education, whatever. So, so for us, you know, to be honest, we in the United States, it's very before I used to think we had to educate a bunch of people until I started we started doing what we did. And, you know, all you gotta do is walk outside and, and get your feet stepped on a, a some type of corroded metal. And if you don't take care of it, the blessing in this country is we've got adequate health care, right? We can go to an emergency room, we can go to CVS, we can go to any of this, you know, like a pharmaceutical place, Walgreens and, and get some type of anti you know, antibiotic and you can take care of it. But to the 1.5 billion people in the world, they don't have that choice. The fact that they, they just stepped up some kind of broken bottle or some corroded metal or some kind of barbed wire could be a death sentence as a refugee camp. Besides the fact that they can't go to school, it becomes a public health issue. And then you lay on top of that in our country, the dignity and the fact. I tell people all the time, we run one of the largest footwear humanitarian organizations that has very little to do with shoes. Because what we deal actually, Aaron, is we deal in hope. Because it's one thing to be able to provide shoes and provide dignity, but to be able to actually remind, just like that missionary from Wisconsin reminded me that that the reason why I'm here, I'm here for something much bigger than me. You know, and when we give our life away and we get the poor into into our future generation and use that opportunity to be able to listen to them and pour into them and encourage them and help identify what their dream is and it. And it may be as little providing them basketball shoe or soccer shoe or football shoes or whatever it is to be able to go live out that dream. 
We don't know if we plant a seed that will help revolutionize. Maybe that'll be the future Steve Smith in the NFL. Maybe become the next top baseball player in the MLB. It could be one of the, the future president of the United States. We don't know who, where, or how we're making that impact. So I tell people every time I, I get the chance to sit in front of them after I wash their feet, I always ask them, what's their dream? You know, And I always remind them that they're here for something much bigger than themselves, that we are just a passing tree here. And as part of that journey, we get the chance to be able to deposit hope and actions will one day create ripples. Sometimes we get the chance to see the results of our generosity. Sometimes we don't, but we don't know. We've seen some stories of folks that we've impacted where today they now have families to be able to go to school. We've seen, you know, like future nurses, actually nurse practitioners in West Virginia and Kentucky, that they remember that volunteer from Samaritan's reminding them to not give up when they're going through school. And, and while they were thinking about quitting and they remember that person reminding them that they're going to go through challenges and situations, but to not quit, not give up, that maybe I was sent that day to remind you, but when you want to quit, to remind you that you can accomplish and do something much greater. See, that's the power of what we do. We inspire hope, we activate hope, not just in the receivers, but also our volunteers, our over 200,000 volunteers around the world that we've activated. To think about how we, and, and now we're now taking that a step further, Aaron. We've now actually launching because part of what we came from, people always call us Good Samaritan. And one of the most powerful stories that we learned a long time ago was the story of this Good Samaritan. So we actually taken this model of this Good Samaritan, we actually created a leadership model from it that we want to start teaching young people that you can actually be generous, you can be kind, you can reach across cross-cultural line and serve. And as a corporation, we can actually embrace those virtues of what a Samaritan is and be able to quantify that and make that be part of the DNA of your company, the ethos of who you are. So we're doing that. We're actually teaching that class right now at Clemson University. We're about to expand into a number of other universities across the country. And we're talking to a number of school districts across the United States to teach them at high school, middle school, and elementary schools to teach not just generosity, but the power of what it means to be a good Samaritan and identify people like that and help recognize and help launch them to be able to accomplish and even do greater things. Were you ever able to track down that good Samaritan or that organization that was the spark for what is now today an incredible organization? I have not. And, you know, like, it's so crazy. It's so funny. You know, people always ask me, have you seen Dave? I said, I have not. I I hope I can become Dave to millions of people all over the world, even though if I don't see him personally myself, that maybe now through the advent of technology, some people can actually find us. Actually, so funny, in Burundi, you know, there were some kids that we used to go there. We've served probably probably three, 400,000 people across Burundi. And, and there was a kid that we served at, a, at an orphanage there in Bujumbura that eventually, as part of the refugee program, actually ended up going to, you won't believe this, Aaron, to Bismarck, North Dakota. And through the power of Facebook and Instagram, you found us and sent us an unbelievable message. And then we've actually had him come speak a couple of our gayers to think about that. Everything we do is never in vain. And that kid today, after he heard my story that I want to get a degree in international relations, I want to go around. He got an international relations major. He's now actually started his charity. He's actually living in Arizona now. It's amazing how our actions make a difference. And, and that was just one person that we poured into in Burundi that's now also impacting the world. Yeah. Yeah. That ripple effect. Now you mentioned, I think it was in 2002, 2003, you lost your dad and you went back home. It was actually sooner than, it was actually before that. It was actually in 1997 that I lost him and that I went back home and then I came back, but it took us a while before we actually stepped out to go do this. Yeah. And were you, were you able to say goodbye to him? 
not in person, you know, but I think the beauty is one of the most powerful things that happened, actually. Uh, I'm a person of fate. I still remember calling my sister because my dad was struggling. He actually ended up dying of source of the liver. And, you know, because of his choices, I always tell people in life, we get the chance to make our choices, but seldom do we get to pick our consequences. So my father's choice to abuse alcohol and some of the other things, he eventually catch up to him. But through this process, my father and I, through my sister, actually got reconciled and but we didn't, I didn't get a chance to physically say, talk to him right before he passed away. I did on the phone a little bit, but I didn't see him physically. But I know I'll see him one day. Yeah. No, I, I asked because I had a similar experience. My father also struggled with alcoholism and I did not get to say goodbye to him. Not really. I was It was one way because he, really, he could hear me, but he couldn't speak by the time I got to his hospital bed. And we too had a very challenged relationship. And it was when I became a dad myself, I was able to then find the power to reconcile with him because something really clicked. And once you become a parent, you know, things change significantly for you and forever and for good reason. That's the reason why I ask, because I think it's really important to have some level of reconciliation. I don't believe in closure. I don't think that's possible, but I do believe in forgiveness and reconciliation. It's so important. I mean, I do something, I take my business leaders and just leaders as a whole, as, as part of a father-son trip, we go to different parts of the world. And one of the things that we do after we've been there serving kids and orphanages in different places, I get the fathers to write a letter to their son to ask for forgiveness. And it's crazy. I have to read my publicly in front of all these people that goes on this trip. And, and it's amazing. I remember one day and my son, who's now getting ready to go play basketball, is now a senior in high school, and telling him that I was sorry for some of the things I've done. And I just broke and then through that process of, of me asking my son for forgiveness, I had to actually step back and physically, even there, even though I got the chance to do through my sister, I had to actually let go through this letter and ask my father, you know, because I held a lot of stuff. I also, even though I felt like he did me wrong, but I didn't realize that he was, it was part of my development process, you know, but, but it was part of my forgiveness of him as well, because you're absolutely right. When you have your own child, it's amazing how things change and you see things through a different sets of lenses. And you realize that you're the one being set free when you let go. Exactly. And it takes a lot. I mean, negative energy and negative thoughts and anger requires a lot more effort. And it's so much more debilitating than positive energy and reconciliation and looking forward, not looking back. And it's hard for, for all of us to recognize that until you're actually in that process. And sometimes you just need someone to tell you and show you the way. And it sounds like you've done that for so many people. And you also are an author, right? And I think that probably was quite cathartic for you. You wrote a book called Soul Purpose, of course, S-O-L-E. And what was that journey like? What was that process like? It's hard. I think people don't appreciate how hard it is to write anything, let alone an entire book. It's kind of like my letter to the world. It's part of my journey and, and to be able to actually inspire folks to go seek out their soul purpose. It was actually, we, we kind of did some a double meaning on that word, and uh, but it was so powerful because I think when you read it, that uh, you can go to maniahome.com and, and get one of those. But I think it's amazing to think about there's so many people like myself all across the world that's asking themselves this question, why am I here? What problem am I here to solve? And it's, it's very easy. And sometimes it may seem so difficult, but I always tell people with the comfort in which you've been comforted, if you just try to comfort others. And in through that process, the reality of that stuff the picture will become clearer eventually. And, you know, uh, somebody gave me a pair of shoes years ago and that became a close loop that came back that said, you know, what if I can do this for somebody else just like me? It's now become a, 
a global organization that now has affiliate in about seven other countries, now serve people in over 110 countries. But it's, it's amazing what can happen. And that's what that story is about. You know, talk about when we started, uh, one of the first basketball coaches that actually learned about us. That's actually why, how many people first learn about Samaritans through our partners with the NCAA. We asked a Division One coach to help us coach a game on national TV with no shoes, and which in honor of Dr. King, which which uh, end up raising over 200,000 pairs of shoes, became ABC Person of the Week, Person of the Year. Eventually, it got me to go connect with Ernie Johnson, MB on TNT. That got me on there with Ernie and Charles Barkley and Kenneth Smith all going barefoot to help draw attention and awareness to our cause. And so we shared about those stories and how decisions and actions create ripples and how that can transform and revolutionize the world. And that was Tulane, right? Is that the coach at Tulane? He is not Tulane, yes. He used to be at IUPUI, then eventually went to Georgia State, and that's where his yep. name was Ron Hunter. Yep, yep, yep. Now, I just want to end on one other thing, which is how people can get involved. So you, you created something called Soul Society, and that's a way for others to get involved, right? There are many ways. I mean, so that's one. And right now in the United States, we actually created this innovative way that people can actually sponsor also shoe lockers. We're setting up lockers at elementary, middle school, and high schools across the United States. Our vision over the next a year or two is to put about a thousand lockers at Title One schools with 250 pairs of shoes, socks, hope notes, you know, hygiene kits, and just the message of hope. Corporations can adopt that and, and get their associates engaged. Individuals can be a sole society partner. People can sponsor a pair of shoe a day, a week, a month, get your friends to, to do shoe drives. But more importantly, you can also even just, if you can give, you can go to our website and write hope notes that we get to print and actually help deliver with each one of our pair of shoes. Or you can go with us and go deliver these shoes domestically or travel with us internationally to also go serve these kids. Well, Manny, it's so great to hear your story. It's so inspiring. And as my mother would say, you are an uber mensch <laughs> and you are an incredibly good person and a, and a kind soul, S-O-U-L. Oh, and I'm so grateful to have the privilege to meet you and to have you on the show. And I wish you only the best. I can't wait to continue to see your success. And I'm hoping to be able to get online later today and join Soul Society and find a way to get involved. And I hope that everywhere I go, I see shoe lockers everywhere to help all these people really fulfill their dreams and find hope where there's adversity. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and, and blessings to you and thanks for all you do. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com.